On this week's pod, we build an unofficial Hall of Fame to one of the greatest to ever do it, Walt Simonson. We include seminal works like his run on The Mighty Thor from the 1980s, his Manhunter backup stories from Detective Comics, and his art for one of the first Marvel and DC crossovers, The Uncanny X-Men and the New Teen Titans. The discussion also gets into his unforgettable, unique signature, which, if you never noticed, is in the shape of a dinosaur, and his quick cameo in the first Thor film from 2011. I'm Adrian Johnson, and as always, thanks for listening. All right, so constructing a Hall of Fame means that we can put anything in. So we can put in comics, we can put in backup stories, we can put in covers, we can put in mm. um, graphic novels. Uh, if he worked in animation at all, which I don't think he has, um, you know, no. that that would be eligible. But for like for future episodes with other artists, let's say if it was Kevin Nolan, you could put in his Batman mm. the Animated Series work as part of his his Hall of Fame. Or um yeah. or someone who did characters that said he did um you know, like Ross, you know, did uh, design work for, you know, for movies. You know, that would be included in, if we were going to do an Alex Ross Hall of Fame. All of that would be included mm-hmm. in it. But so for Walt Simonson, which um, when you first mentioned it, I was like, OK. And then as I started, you know, kind of because I said I, I said I really want to take a couple of days to kind of make sure I, I look through my comics and I do some poking mm-hmm. around to make sure that I don't forget anything because I haven't looked at, you know, any of my Walt Simon comics and stuff in a long time. And then as I started looking, mm. I was just like, God damn. God damn, yo. <laughs> <laughs> seriously. Seriously. Oh, my goodness. If he, he, he's, he's, he doesn't readily come to mind unless you get like a trigger. If somebody says, you know, Thor... Or Manhunter, then like, oh yeah, Walt Simonson, that type yeah. of thing. But he's done so much. He's been in the industry pretty much as long as like you know some of the other stalwarts have like a shaken or you know just anybody who came in that seventies yeah. ilk, like over fifty years has been in the yeah. game. You know. Yeah, yeah, and um, it's funny. So I, I don't know anybody. List, I don't imagine anyone listening to this show doesn't know who Walt Simonson is as a comic artist and as a writer, but. Right. Um, I was just reading and, you know, he was, he was born in Tennessee. He was raised in Maryland. Uh, he went to school in Maryland, went to, to school for, uh, I think, geology for, for uh, no, for dinosaurs. Yeah. Paleontology, paleontology. for paleontology. Uh, he ended up getting his degree, but he always drew, always liked comics. And he was kind of embarrassed about liking comics when he became a younger man. And then after he got his four year degree in paleontology, then he went to RISD. And became an mm-hmm. art major and went to D.C. And he is one of the few comic professionals I've ever heard where he immediately got work. Like yeah. from the jump. Like he he's the story, according to as I've heard it, is he walks in and he's got a meeting with a friend who works at D.C. And then he meets the aforementioned Howard Chaikin or I think it was Howard Chaikin and Kaluta and Wrightson and maybe one other person. And they all start start mm. talking and kind of making friends or whatever, and just there in the lobby or wherever they were, and then they go he they send him into one editor's office, and then that editor sends him into Carmen Infantino's office, who is the publisher or the editor in chief, and then Carmen yeah. Infantino gives him work, and then he gets work from somebody else, and then he's he's working ever since, 
you know. So right. so from right. the gate, from the jump, from the giddy up, people recognized, <laughs> you know, like what he was able to do and, you know, the uniqueness of his style. And and I think also too, will you tell me what you think, but it's a really magical time to be working in comics um for mm. for most because uh there was a lot going on um things were much freer and simpler in terms of you know you walk in and you talk to somebody and hey you walk out with a job or you do a quick sketch on some copier paper D isn't that your impression as well yeah and that's why i love you know listening to those stories about the 70s you know you hear a lot of those those um, artists from Dan and, and creatives. I, I won't limit it to just mm -hmm. the artists, but a lot of creatives going into like one of the big two because they were very, they were much more accessible then, you know, um, just like you, just like you've intimated, you know, they were able to walk into an editor's office, try doing that today, not happening. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> much less even established talents can't do that, mm -hmm. you know? So to go back in the seventies and to see how they were able to just be freewheeling and change and change the industry you know for the better just in terms of you know the creativity and the stories that came out of it you know it was a very transitory time you know in such a wonderful way and you had you know guys like you know miller burn and you know shaken starlin and simonson you know really starting to get their sea legs and going into like the 80s yeah just take off, yeah. man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And then, you know, you got writers like Bill Mantlo and Lynn Ween, Marv Wolfman, uh, Steve, Steve Gerber, Gerber and... Jerry Conway, uh, later on mm -hmm. Steve Englehart, uh, Chris, Chris Claremont. Claremont, Chris Claremont, you know, um, Doug Minch, you know, just tons and tons of talents. And it's funny because, you know, we oftentimes in, amongst the, the true old school OG comic heads, will refer to yeah. the uh, the artists who, who uh, were members of the studio as like the the art Beatles, the comic art Beatles, you know. <laughs> yeah. Kaluta yeah. Wrightson and, and <laughs> Windsor Smith and um and Jeff Jones. And Jones. Yeah, Jeffrey Jones. But yeah. I think like I could I think you could draw a a a thin comparison to the seventies in comics with those artists like you just mentioned, Starlin and Simonson and you know Chaikin as an up and comer and uh and and um Kaluta and some of the others you know it's very you could draw a very thin comparison but I like it to the new Hollywood of the film industry where you had Kubrick and uh Lucas and and Spielberg and, Spielberg and Scorsese and, and and they would hang and uh what was the writer's name uh John uh Milius Yes, John Milius, yeah. and so they knew each other. They knew about each other. There was kind of a friendly competition, and also a friendly support in a way. You know, some mm -hmm. went to really great heights. Others, it took a little bit longer to get there. Some never really got there. Some were more yeah. known by their reputation uh, early on, like Milius and and uh, and Chaikin. Um and some became multi-hyphenates later in in the game you know milius was a writer at first he wrote you know uh, apocalypse now and then eventually went on to direct things like you know red dawn and whatnot and same with chaikin and with you know with uh starling you know they started out as artists and then became writer artists later on um mm -hmm. but you know really just kind of an interesting time and then also too like i was always thought it was magical the you know the whole idea of like backup stories and three-page stories and five-page stories and 
you know, artists saying, hey, I'm, I'm behind on this book. Can you come over and help me? And so somebody would come on and spot blacks and, and, and ink backgrounds for you and would do it. You know, they wouldn't get any credit for it. They might, you know, order pizza, I guess, and, and give them a case of beer or whatever. <laughs> and then they just kind of hang out or they just come over and just help out their buddies. But yeah. I, I don't feel that anymore. Maybe that's just of, that was of a time. You know, it's it's a different day and age now. But it, it certainly seemed mm-hmm. like like a really cool time. And even Simonson says himself that, um, you know, when he, he lived in the same, uh, uh, Queens apartment building with Shaken and Alan Milgram and one other person, I believe. And so they would, uh-huh. you know, come over to each other's houses at one, two o'clock in the morning and eat popcorn and talk about, you know, TV and girls and, and comics and all that kind of stuff. And he said, even then he knew as a young, young man, these are the good old days. He knew that even then. You know, so because, mm-hmm. you know, that generation thought that comics wouldn't last more than, you know, five years, you know, like they thought like once 1980 hit, that was it. You know what I'm saying? So they were trying to get while the getting was good. So they thought, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what I mean? and they and they definitely got. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one other comparison is funny. You say that another comparison to the new Hollywood was um, the idea that. They came in at a time where there was kind of, you know, it was a sea change from, well, they came in at a time, they came in as fans of the medium. And it was the same thing with Lucas and with Spielberg and all these. These were people who grew up wanting to make movies. These were not, you know, theater directors who became film directors. And these were not film directors who saw it simply as a job and and really didn't have, you know, maybe have some of the love uh, and the fandom love that like a Tarantino or somebody like that has coming along. These were guys, you know, the the guys who made films in the 50s and the 60s, these were very much like, you know, they were on, they were for high. I mean, they were on salary. You know what I mean? They weren't making a million dollars. They were making $300 a week. And they'd make the films and they were on contract and they would just work until their contract ran out and then they would go on to something else. So these these right. guys came in wanting to make comics, growing up reading Gil Kane and and and, and um or Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby and Gil Kane and Kurt Swan and you know and all of these other creatives. And so they had a there was a fandom aspect to it that was very different. And I think it's similar to Spielberg and some of the others um as well. So for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so let's get to the Hall of Fame. So I think we should we should. There are some things that we're ab- obviously going to agree on right away. So if something's going in, it's a green. If it's All going right. in, it's it's a green. If it's debatable, we'll mark it as yellow, and then we'll come back to it. Um, and right. then if it's an automatic red for one of us, then we then we got to debate it, yo. We got to litigate it right here and right here now, yo. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if it's gonna be much red for Sabison. <laughs> it's really there's really just a potpourri, but again, some things are special to to you, and some things will be special to me, and and some things will be special yeah. to both of us uh, without question. So. Mm. Um, so let's go ahead and get it started. So let's let's go with like a couple of automatic greens. All right, okay, you got an automatic green that you want to throw out? Yes, absolutely, man. Thor, automatic green, the mighty automatic Thor. Automatic green, sir. <laughs> <laughs> automatic green, sir. Just like without question. And, and it, yeah, absolutely. And let me specify that because before his um, seminal '80s run that everyone knows and everyone agrees on is just awesome. He had done some <laughs> issues of Thor 
um, back in the uh, late mm-hmm. 70s, the very late mm-hmm. 70s, you know. But the Thor that I'm thinking of and that you think of and that everyone thinks of is starting with Thor 337. Beta Ray Bill in the costume smashing the logo. Mm-hmm. That lets you know right then it's a new sheriff in town. His name is Better Radio. Right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yo, yo, yo. Man, man. So, yes, automatically, automatically green. So, so let me ask you this. Uh, adjacent to that, would it be proper mm-hmm. in a Walt Simonson Hall of Fame to not only include his Thor, the entirety of his Thor run as writer and artist, but also okay. to include either Beta Ray Bill as a character that he created or Frog Thor. Oh, oh man. That's oh, because both of them are both of them are renowned. Gosh, it's, both of those storylines are so yeah. memorable. Ugh. And it's and that's kind of like you know, like in comics, things tend to repeat and people do do the same things over and over. You know, they, they'll run it to death like anything else. We're going to run it till the wheels fall off this motherfucker. Yep. But um, I don't think anyone else has successfully or as successfully done something like take a main character and turn him into an animal. Mm, that, you know what I mean? You're right. I don't, I don't think that's really been done or done to the level that he did it. To the point where people universally were like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that worked. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I'm sure seeing it on the stands, you know, as you did, and you were like, what? Huh? Yeah. But it it took three issues, and you was there for all, all three yeah. issues. You was like, dang, this yeah. works. Yeah, I'm with it. I'm with it. And his Thor was fantastic. Like, I like to think really and truly his Thor really was Chris Hemsworth before there was a Chris Hemsworth. You know what I mean? Like mm, mm. the look and feel of him. Yeah. You know, he Chris Hemsworth wasn't even born when Thor came out <laughs> uh, in 1982, three, whatever, four, whatever it was, you know, back in the day. But I mean, I, that's what I think of when I read the issues and look back at the issues. I'm like, this is kind of Chris Hemsworth and, you know, in, in a very real way. And to the point that um, after the halfway point of, after the Frog of Thunder Mm -hmm. storyline, Thor gets transformed back and Simonson actually gives Thor a beard. Mm -hmm. So he really does look more like Chris Hemsworth Mm -hmm. would eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, and just just so awesome. And and the way, way, because Simonson had a very illustrious beard himself in real life. So whenever he drew bearded characters... That beard was a graphic itself, yeah. almost. Yeah. You know? yeah, you're right. You're right. It had a speci- there was a specific affectation uh, to his beard, a visual affectation that uh, is kind of hard to put in words. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right. So, so Thor is an automatic green that automatically goes in. Let's let's con- let's consider Beta Ray Bill and Frog Thor as as yellows for now, to maybe include later. Yeah. Uh, at least one of them, maybe both. We'll see. Uh, as things All go, right. I'm going to throw an automatic, uh, an automatic green and my automatic green is going to be the Manhunter backup stories and detective comics written by the great late, great Archie Goodwin. <sighs> shit's that shit's yes. fire dog. That shit's <sighs> fire dog. It's yes. fire, yo. <laughs> Bro. Oh, <laughs> oh. oh, I remember reading them. Man. And here's the thing, you know, they collected them later in various forms three or four times as, as i recall 
Uh, maybe even yeah. once with a square back and like with the whole thing with new, mm-hmm. with new Simons cover art. The reason why you want to get the backup stories in Detective Comics is because if you get the whole run, you get some terrific Jim Apparel covers. First of all, let's just go ahead and say that. Okay. You get some yes, terrific Jim yeah. Apparel covers. And doesn't one of the issues have Death Flies, The Haunted Skies in it? There you go. So, yep. Number 442. So you get mm-hmm. you get an Alex Toth Batman story, probably the most iconic Alex Toth Batman story uh, of all time. Mm. So you, you get a lot of goodness if you get those ish all of those issues and not the collected version. So yeah. um, so I'm gonna yeah. throw that out as automatic backup, automatic uh, an automatic green, yo. Yeah, no, no argument. No and in fact you, the the issue that you're speaking of. I got that at a comic book store when I was younger, when I just got into the hobby, when I was 14. Um, they had it for $2, just in the back issues. And I got it because, really, I didn't know anybody. I got it more because it was a 100-page issue. It was one of those 100-page spectaculars. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, okay, cool, 100 pages for $2? Okay, right. cool. And then it was later that, that I started to realize that, oh, wow, I got really lucky. You know, it had the Manhunter, it had Toast, and at apparel. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's what's up. And, you know, I was a big fan of those giant size and those 100 page spectaculars because you got so much bang for your buck. Um, yeah. Now granted, they would always give you like some 19, golden age 1940s. <laughs> Star-Spangled Boy, you know, you know the Newsboy Legion or something, you know, with yeah. with that old moldy Kirby art where you, you know, he's kind of unformed, you know. Yeah. But but you know you got a lot out of it, and you know same thing with those you know like Batman families, Superman families, and you know those larger yeah. double and triple size issues. You just got a lot of stuff out of it, and that's how I found. To be honest, as a as a as a budding comic fan, as a not you know novice up and coming comic fan, um, that's how yeah. I found out about Golden Age characters, and you know, um, other than reading about them in the Price Guide or something like that, you know, I was able to read those stories and like, oh, okay, The Guardian, okay, all right, Black Condor, goddamn, all yep. right, I feel you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So um, I throw out another one that I think for me is just an automatic, it's an automatic green yo. Okay, and it's the uh, the cape and the cowl death trap from Detective Comics four fifty, written by Elliot S. Magan, um, which okay. was adapted into an animated episode of Batman the Animated Series, as well. Do you recall the issue? Hmm. What what issue was it again? It's, what was, it's what, det- was it in Batman or Detective, Detective? Comics uh, number four fifty, and mm-hmm. it's Batman with the little short ears. Right, and, right, the little chipmunk kid. And it's, yeah. you know, it's like a wax museum. There's a, there's a whole thing with the wax museum. And uh, and Batman, you know, puts wax in his in his cowl and throws it and breaks the glass. You don't, you don't remember that? No, because you know why? Because I always confuse those Simonson Batman stories with either Batman 300 um, or there was one that he did with the Calendar Man, also a detective, like right before... You know, the Inglehart uh, Rogers. Well, I know he, you know what I'm saying? I I know he did Batman Once Upon a Time with Lynn Wein, and that was a good one, too. And that was one that Mm -hmm. I actually had on my list as a possible yellow. I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember it? Batman Once Upon a Time? Um, 
if, if it's like if you were to throw the issue number at me, it'll pop okay. up, but not right off. Okay, that's so yeah. strange that the number comes brings it to mind for you as opposed to the title of the story. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> truly encyclopedia. It's, like, it's like a beautiful yeah. mind. These issue number three thirty seven. First issue, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> The human price guide. <laughs> um. <laughs> but I, I think, yeah, the the cape and the cowl death trap is a terrific issue. And if you've if you've not seen it, I think it should go in because for me, it was his first time that I'm aware. It's the first time that he drew Batman, and he drew him with the tiny ears. And it and what that told me as a young comic fan and as a young uh, young uh, uh, drawer, if you will, was. You know, before that, it was always the long ears. You know, the Denny O'Neill, and then eventually uh, Bernie Wrightson, and then eventually, you know, Marshall Rogers. Everybody did the long ears. And I was like, why did he do the short yeah. ears? That's weird looking. And uh-huh. it took a minute for me to get used to it. But from page one to the very last pages, by the time I got to the end of the story, I was like, oh man, I fuck with these short ears, yo. These little, these little teddy bear ears, yo. I can't, I can't, I fuck yeah, with them, yo. <laughs> oh my god! So oh, I, I really love that issue. I think it should be in a. But we can consider it a yellow for now. Let's just make sure we get automatic greens, and then we'll go back. But do you have anything else you gotcha. want to throw out? Yeah, I sure do, man. Um, Got to throw out the X Men and Teen Titans crossover. That book right sir. there, sir. <laughs> Sir. Bruh, that's that's that Simonson like at the apex that's, of his yeah, powers. And, yeah, yeah. And Terry Austin yeah. just sir, oh, sir. Oh. Don't don't even stop there. <laughs> Peak of his powers, journeyman comic book artist, making some good ass comic books. Okay, mm. nineteen eighty two, mm-hmm. ink by Terry Austin, lettered by Tom Orzakowski, yes. colored yes. by Glennis Wing. Edited yes. by Louise Jones and Lin Wing. Sir, yes. that was the dream team, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that was the Chicago Bulls with Pip. With, with Mike and Pip, yo. With Dennis, yo. Yeah. <laughs> man, oh. man. I was just, it, yeah, if I got that right behind me, yo. And it's just like looking back through it. Yeah. It still crackles. Yeah. It still is like. Man, yeah. oh my yeah. God. Now, let me ask you this, because yeah. as I've gotten older, I have mm. maintained my my fervent love of seeing things on newsprint. Do you think that yes. book would have been, would have had a different quality if it hadn't been on the prestige, the prestige, the high quality paper in that prestige quality format? Because that was like a that was a, a higher quality book. It wasn't just a regular ass comic book. That was, that, that's, you know what I'm saying. It's and true, Simonson really but, jumps off the page on newsprint for me. Like it's something about that newsprint where I'm just like, damn, this is where it's supposed to be right yeah. here, yo. <laughs> You know, and there's something to that because Simonson's Simonson's work, uh, you can see it almost immediately. Like it's still a little bit rounded, but sh- very shortly he starts to become a lot more graphic oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, his edges starts to get real mm-hmm. sharp, and you know, it starts to really coalesce. And once he got to like the early '80s period, like on X Men Titans, it was there. And I think the reason why it pops off. You know, of newsprint like that, and I, and by the way, I totally agree with you. Um, it's because 
he was so adept at drawing graphics. Like, yes, you had artists who were very illustrative, and that stuff looks great on newsprint mm-hmm. too, but it's something about Simonson's graphics, the way that his, his figures and were shapes, you know, and shapes tend to respond and read better than a lot of cross-hatching and feathering and so mm-hmm. forth. You know, it looks beautiful, but there's something about the immediacy of Simonson's uh, graphics that really makes it pop on newsprint, and, as with X-Men And Titans. very designy, very like, mm-hmm. you know, that was the thing that really got me more than anything else was like, he wasn't trying to draw supernaturalistically. You know, there was, it was representational in terms of the anatomy and the figure drawing and the, and the, and the draftsmanship. But it was also pushed and stretched and abstracted in places in a, in a subtle mm-hmm. way to where it was like, okay, well, it was just very different and was very designy. I mean, obviously, you know, one of one of his influences, like Sergio Topi, um, yes. uh, uh, Jim Holdaway, uh, the British comic book artist, and of course, Mod- Modesty yeah, Blades. now of course, you know, Jack Kirby and, and people like that, but. Um, but yeah, it was just anyway. There's just something about the newsprint for specifically for his stuff where I was just like, wow, it it just mm-hmm. it just works for me. And, and you know, and you know, there's something also to be said about the fact that you know people were drawing f- towards and away from the strengths and the limitations of the mediums. You know, so you know they're drawing on this this large you know uh you know eight seven ten by seventeen or whatever. You know, comic page, but it's got to be shrunk down, and so you want to you want to you want right. to put it on a copier and shrink it down and see what it looks like smaller because big everything looks good big, but you know when you shrink it down, okay, what details are being lost? You know what what mm-hmm. are the what are some of the things? What's what do the backgrounds look like when they're very very small like that? Do I need to take fewer lines more lines out of it so that it reads better and it reads you know more fluidly? You know. So I so mm-hmm. I don't know, but yeah, one hundred percent X Men Teen Titans crossover. That was was that one of the first crossovers. It it, it was up there yeah. for sure because it was a big deal. Because right before that, George Perez was supposed to have drawn uh, the first um, JLA and Avengers crossover, but intercompany politics, you know, eventually prevented that from happening. So the next big one was X Men Titans, where both companies were like, okay, you got the hottest characters. We got the hottest characters. Let's put them together and make some money, which they right. did. Uh, apparently, they said they made some royalties off of that because um, the royalty system had just been installed by Jim Shooter at right. Marvel. Right. So right. since they were Marvel characters, they got some. They got some uh, royalties off mm-hmm. of that. And it was a big hit, and, and the book cost two dollars yeah. too. You know, back yeah. when most books were like seventy five cents. You uh, know? they were so, probably a little more then. Yeah. Oh yeah, by by Yeah, they were probably like a dollar, dollar twenty five by then. But it was still twice as expensive. Uh and you know, if you were running around, you know, with your lunch money or your little, you know, your little your little Joe (laughs) job money that you're making, you know, bagging groceries or you know, doing whatever. Right, right, right. You know, all of that. All of that. But um I believe so as it as it relates to crossovers, when did Spider Man Mm. Superman, Superman Spider Man come out? Oh, that was before, yeah, okay. right? Um, that, yes, that was just a couple years okay. before. That was in '81. Okay. That was that Treasury edition by Ross yeah, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that actually preceded it, but um, yeah, 100 percent X Men Teen Titans crossover. Okay, so now we're starting to get into you know what's you know the, the debatables, right? 
So I'm going to throw right. a cover out there that I think is a fantastic Walt Simonson cover. And it's Batman number 366, The Joker is Wild. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I just think yeah. that's just, again, iconic. It's it's him doing Batman again, Kate going all over the damn place, you know. Um, that architecture of that building, mm-hmm. yeah. Joker's face looking yep. down. It's something about covers with Joker's face overlooking everything that works. Think about the Neil Adams cover, the Joker's five-way revenge. Joker's face looking oh down over everybody. Oh, my God, yo. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> what is the um there's a Neil Adams cover not with the Joker but there's one with Batman. I think it's you see the Batman and Man Bat but they're over the city of Gotham and there's a, there's an uplight on them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mhm. I absolutely do. Yep, there was a detective. I'm not sure about the number, but it's a detective, detective comics. comics. Yep. There are days mm-hmm. when I look at that I'm like, "Okay, this is the greatest Batman cover of all time." Of all time, oh, I mean, you man. just you had never seen anything like that at the time, and I remember just being like, "Oh my God, Neil Adams is God, yeah. yo!" <laughs> <laughs> you know how people say "On God" today, yo, on Neil Adams, yeah. yo. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> oh my mama! Oh my mama! Oh my mama, yo! <laughs> I put everything on that. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, Batman oh, 366, man. the Joker Joker is wild. I think it's an iconic Batman cover. Again, it's Walt rendering mm. Batman. Actually doing him with the long ears now and not with the short ears. And I think it's right. important to note that if you look at that cover, if you look at Batman Once Upon a Time, if you look at really any, uh, any opportunities that Walt Simons has had to draw Batman, you can see the clear through line of influence that he had on Todd McFarlane as an artist, and mm. even Todd McFarlane's creation of Spawn, you know, mm. in many ways, the design aspects, I mean, the design aspects, of course, you know, it's a kind of a, a gumball of a lot of different characters that he kind of picked from. Yeah. Uh, almost in like a Tarantino kind of way. I'm going to take a little of this, a little of that, a little of this, and now it kind of seems original, you know. But, you know, the big <laughs> flowing cape and the lines and the uh, just the way mm. he kind of, he kind of, um, Makes the cape organic as you know, almost a part of Batman, and or, or uses it as um, you know to create negative space in the panel, or or maybe to not draw backgrounds. I don't even know, you know. <laughs> but I think that cover sh- should definitely go in. What what else you got, man? Oh man, let's see. I got a do do do. All right, jumping ahead a little bit in the eighties. Um, got uh, his his X Factor in particular. Yes. In yes. particular. His character, Art Archangel. Yes, yes. He created Archangel. Didn't, like he, didn't he do the design for Archangel? Archangel. Yeah. Um, in fact, it, it was him and his and his then wife, now well, still wife, uh, Luis Luis Simonson, then Luis Jones, mm-hmm. and because uh, she was writing the book then and he was drawing it, so they had that one two <laughs> that one two punch. But Archangel looks like a '90s character. But this was created in like '86, you know what yeah, I'm saying? It's, and it was just like it's the, it's the spillover we were talking about with First Blood, where it was actually it was in the '80s, but it felt like the '70s. And it's like, okay, this was done in the in the '80s, but it really does tell you what the '90s are going to be like in terms of armor and straps and mm-hmm. metal being a part of it of a of a uniform. Yeah, absolutely. 
and and also within that storyline, you have um, Simonson drawing Apocalypse, which is definitive yeah. to me. Like that that storyline um, during the I believe it's the fall of the mutants mm -hmm. is absolutely definitive. You know, because Apocalypse takes Angel prisoner and then transforms him into one of the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. Right, right, <laughs> ironically, right. and, <laughs> and um, he names him Archangel, and Archangel leads the Horsemen against the X Men, who at that time were known as X Factor, the original X Men, and just man, the graphics of mm. it, uh, just mm. just on point, you know. And beyond that, the, his whole run once he started on X Factor is fantastic as yeah. well. Like it crackles with energy. It is just, oh man, it's it's brilliant. You know what I'm saying? And it ends with him doing a there's there's a crossover. There's like a X-Men crossover called Inferno that was going on at the time. Where basically uh New York City just transforms and in, transforms into like this version of demons and witchcraft and hell. And it really let him cut loose, you know, with all these monsters mm. and all these other types of things. It's just brilliant. So I would say as a character, like we were saying before with uh, Betty Ray Bill and um, Frog of Thunder, I would say Archangel as a character and then the run of X-Factor, maybe not the whole run, but select issues, you know, should go yeah. in there. Um, and yeah, like you're saying, you know, the, the character of Archangel who has lived on, like Archangel is the, is the angel that people know from the X-Men cartoons, you know. Yeah, he is, for all intents and purposes, he is Angel right. now, I mean. They can call him Archangel, but now people just say, "Oh, that's yeah. Angel." Yeah, you know and saying? it is such a forebearer to a, uh, a forerunner to, you know, the aesthetic and the sensibilities of the '90s, uh, in terms of making the the characters a little grittier, a little harder edged, mm -hmm. um, a little uh, less spandex, a little more leather, lycra, and a little more military like in a way. Um, so yeah, I would I would 100 percent agree. All right, I'm gonna throw a controversial one out there for you. Okay. Maybe not controversial, yeah. but you just may not readily agree. All I right. think his graphic novel Star Slammers goes in. That that's on my list. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. written and written and drawn by the man. Um, this was his thesis when he was at RISD. This he did a fifty-page version yeah. of it. I don't know if any of those original designs, those original layouts made it into the into the the uh the printed book but you you, you say yes they did okay mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah there was this article in comic book artist where he showed kind of a side by side he showed his original drawings from when he was a college kid and then once he did star slammers they see a semblance in some instances like the same design just tweaked with his you know advanced you know artistic skills at that mm -hmm. point now mm -hmm. you know how it made it in and that was also Simonson's ode, if you will. That was his opportunity um, to give a semblance of the like European graphic novels that he was starting to get into, like with Topi. Because before then, it was hard to get that stuff over here. That stuff either had to be imported or you had to go to a convention that by chance, they happened to have some of those graphic novels there somehow. You know what I'm saying? So it was almost him as well you know, with Star Slammers trying to get a semblance of those kind of oversized, you know, graphic mm -hmm. albums that you find in France and mm -hmm. Italy, you know? Mm -hmm. Those, sir, were like 
holy grails, not really holy grails, but they were just like, like I would only see those at conventions. I would only see those yeah. at like a fantasy fair or a dragon con or a convention, maybe like one of my, one or two of my first heroes cons years and years ago in the nineties. Mm. But those were the only times I would ever see those things. You know, you read about them, like, you know, I'm reading in comics interview and amazing heroes you know, French albums and Italian albums, and I knew about these artists, but you mm-hmm. couldn't get any of that stuff. It wasn't available, you know, via American publishers, and if you got the original uh, European versions, then they would be super expensive, or you just, like, you could just see them at a convention, and they might let you pull them out, and okay, here it is, and you're like, okay, <laughs> damn, that's that Mobius, yeah. yo, damn, you know? <laughs> you know, which we could see Mobius in, in heavy metal, but we couldn't see Mobius, yeah. you know, in things that were published, other things that were published in France. And I guess there was uh, uh, Matal Holland, uh, uh as far as uh, heavy metal mm-hmm. goes. But, um, but yeah, man. And so, yeah, you're exactly. I see a Star Slammers to me, again, it just kind of closes a loop, so to speak. You know, this thing that he, that, that he, you know, was his, again, his thesis in college as uh at RISD and then he's able to get it published by you know Marvel graphic novels in 1980 whatever it was uh it yeah did. and it was just you know and it was just it was just super cool and again you know we were all jazz because it's like you know Walt Simonson was the man then you know I was that before or after Thor it was before Thor right uh slightly before yeah. in fact I think at the same time because his Thor run started in 83 okay. as okay. well so he was very busy now also with that, too, we were mentioning earlier about Shaken, Miller, Simonson, Starlin. It's no coincidence that they all shared a studio, too, in the early 80s. Upstart Associates. Up, I think it was Upstart you know. Studios. Upstart Studios. Upstart yeah. Studios. Yeah. Okay. With, yeah, you're uh, right. I'm thinking of continuity. Jim Sherman. Jim Sherman, Jim Sherman that's right. And mm-hmm. was Alan, Alan Weiss? And Val Mayrick. Alan Weiss made his way through and there, too. who's the yep. other one, Val? Val, Val, Val Mayrick. Val Mayrick, Mayrick. yeah. Yeah, Mayorick. yeah, there yeah, Upstart yeah, Studios. Yeah, yeah. I remember that as well, because that inspired me. I was like, I want to get me a studio, yo. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do it. I want to get me a studio, yo. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny because um, Simonson, you know how like you read various interviews and you'll get snippets from each that'll kind of get one vision of like what was going on, like you would read an interview with Miller and Miller would say, yeah, at the time I was working on Ronin, you know, Behind me uh, at his desk, you could I could walk by, you know, at night as I was getting ready to leave and see, you know, um, Walt working on Star Slammers and whatever upcoming issue of Thor was getting ready to come out. I was like, oh, okay, okay. And then Simonson would say, yes, while I was working on Star Slammers, you know, behind me, Shaken was working on or starting his work on American Flag, and it looked very interesting. We don't we don't know how the reception was just yet, but it looked very interesting. Mm-hmm. It was like, man. Mm-hmm. So these guys had a hotbed, yeah. a yeah. hotbed of creativity, yeah. and it and it and it bled off onto um, Simonson too, you know, because there's a there's a page in Star Slammers where um, Simonson drew like all of these various characters, like over forty or fifty. They're on this one page, and they're all telepathically uh, communicating with each mm-hmm. other, but it's like all these small small uh, faces, you know what I'm saying? And I think that played a role in maybe a little bit. You know, with um, with uh, Miller, you know, doing like those small TV screens, you know, in Dark Knight Returns. But you also have Shaken doing the TV screens in American Flag around right, that time, right, too. Right, right, Which also may have influenced yeah. it. So it's just cool how they were all in one studio and they were driving each other, 
you know, just by association to, you know, really attempt more and more grander work, you know, and that shows off in um, uh, Simonson's work around that time, around that 82, 83, 84 period. Yeah. yeah, man. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And and I as as I understand it from from Chaikin's perspective, I, I don't think the studio lasted a long time. I don't think any of those studios no. lasted a long time because a lot of those guys that think their lives are changing. They're all working freelance. <coughs> and um, you know, and I think Chaikin might have been on not to to speak out of term, but maybe like his second marriage or something like that. Or you know, he was he Yep, so, you yep. know, people's lives are changing and their personal lives are changing. And so the idea of paying rent somewhere else when I could just work from home, uh, I'm sure there was, a, there was you know, there was a, um, a debate as to whether or not, you know, how long this this would last. Even the studio with, you know, rights and included and, and, and crew, that didn't last long. It was like less than two years, maybe a year and a half, you know. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, like you said, just the idea of those, the, they all work, they're all working in the same rooms and working on very seminal works. Within their uh, their their bibliographies is just uh, is just incredible. So um, I'm gonna yeah. throw out what I think is just an automatic green, and I, I sent you a text earlier, and it just is what it is, yo. The immortal Doctor Fate number one. <laughs> dog, yeah. come on, dog. What? Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, sir? Yeah. Originally, originally, originally premiered in first issue special number it nine. It was in first issue special number nine. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. But, sir, that splash page. Oh my yeah. God! Yeah, sir, that was <laughs> that is my forever shit, yo. Man, I was like, man. I remember looking at that and thinking, okay, whatever this is, I gotta try to do this. I gotta try mm. to do this. Mm. My God, sir, that shit was spectacular. Yeah. Riding the winds, yeah. And you see the tower mm-hmm. below, and the, his back foot is behind him, so there's a little bit of a shadow on it. And some of the winds are, yeah. you know, they all have the same uh, line weight, and then some of the lines on top have a little bit more of like a brushier, rougher effect. And mm-hmm. Simon Simonson lettered the book too, as mm. he did with mm. uh, Once Upon a Time, uh, the one book he did with Lynn Wein. I think he lettered that one, and I think he lettered. The Cape and the Cow Death Trap. So he's kind of in that, in that Jim Aparo, mm-hmm. Alex Toth. Mm-hmm. You know, I do all this shit, yo. I do all this. I do all all this here. See all that, that all that over there. I do all that. <laughs> you know, so it's just it's just crazy, yeah. man. And I think it is still to this day the definitive. Not that Doctor Fate is is an incredibly iconic character in the DC. Uh, in the DC uh, universe, because it's not, mm-hmm. but I think his version right. is the definitive version of Doctor Fate for me. Uh, maybe Keith Giffen's yeah. is number two. Mm-hmm. You know the late the, the yeah. late Keith Giffen who just passed away late. recently. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. maybe his is number two. But that was that was number one for me, dog. Oh man, man, you know. That and it's funny because you you actually were the one who turned me on to that when we first started, you know, becoming friends and whatnot. I was a Simonson fan, but I wasn't really deep into Simonson. You know, I, I knew the hits. Okay. Know? But like those you little knew, nooks You and had crannies. the best of in your in your collection, but you didn't have you didn't have a deep cut joints, yo. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I remember we were talking one time and you mentioned that Dr. Fate, you know, and you were so, 
emotive and just like, just all about it. I was like, I'm gonna track that down to see what's up. Now, to your point though, you mentioned the Immortal Doctor Fate. That was a uh, collection that DC came out That's and capitalized right. on That's that right. later. That's right. Yeah, as yeah. I, as and I was, was saying it, because even when I wrote it down, I was like, I don't What's remember that? it being the Immortal Doctor Fate. I just remember it being either Doctor Fate <laughs> or, like you said, first right. first origins. Uh, for, first, first issue special, special. First issue special. I remember it being in something because there was something. There was another story in it with that uh, that Doctor Fate story. I, I don't right. think it was the entire book was Doctor Fate, but but yeah, that's mm -mm. that's it and, for me. And that, yeah, and and and, that, and I got that that reprint. And again, it starts with that opening splash, like you said. I was like, okay, yeah, okay, that'll work, yeah, yeah. And then you see, when you read the story, there are other hallmarks of Simonson's style that started even yeah. then. Um, the iconography of the onks when um, Dr. Str Doc Dr. Dr. Strange, Fate. when Dr. Yeah. Fate... <laughs> When Dr. Fate cast his spell and his yeah. powers, the onks show yeah. up. So the iconography of that, um, even the way he drew drew this uh, this mummy, there's a mummy that is like a villain in mm -hmm. there, and the mummy got like this, <laughs> got this, this necklace that looked like a Cuban link with a big dinner plate <laughs> on it. <laughs> was his name was his name Raekwon, yo? <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, but yeah, even the way even the way Simonson drew that, I was like, damn. So his style was kind of starting to take shape, you know. Not if not immediately, it was coming along very quickly. It's not like other guys from around that time where it's like, okay, you can start seeing them getting a formation of who they're going mm -hmm. to be. They just the 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 bread isn't ready ready yet. You need to put it back in the oven for a little while. <laughs> But, you always make that, that analogy, but, yo. <laughs> it don't, man. It, it's, not, it's not crispy yet. It's not ready you yet. Gotta, you got to turn the broil on and get a little brown on top. But not for too long. <laughs> not for too long. You don't want it to burn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't walk away from the oven. Just keep checking like every minute. Just keep checking. Keep yeah. checking. <laughs> You be the burnt that dressing at Thanksgiving, that, people are missing. You know, fucked up my Thanksgiving dressing. <laughs> Man, cancel Christmas too. <laughs> oh boy, but yeah, but yeah, that's how Simonson was. Man, like he, you could you could see him almost from the start. He was really coming into his own at an at a very advanced pace. You know, saying that some of his um, then contemporaries. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that. Um, do you have any more automatic greens? I got Let's a couple see. of wild cards I'm gonna throw at you, but I I, I don't have any okay. more automatic greens at all. Uh no no, it, all the other ones I got they're gonna be may have to debate a few okay. of them because some of them are of my time and then whatever you have. Okay, okay, all right. Well, I I want to throw in because you do you I do like the early slightly not crystallized, not fully formed Simonson. You know, not all the way there, but you can see <laughs> where he's going with it and, you, yeah. and you're willing to ride with him because he, he's, your, he's your guy, yo. But I really like yeah. his, uh, there's a, sp a specific sweet spot uh, of the metal men between issues 47 oh. and 49. Okay. Yeah, I like okay. his metal men because I thought 
you know, and those issues were written by uh, Jerry Conway. I hmm. thought that there are times where an artist truly does marry and meet up with a character or a book that suits their style. In other words, they were drawing for this character or drawing for this thing all along, and it just took them a minute to finally get to it. And then all of a sudden you see, wow. Mm. So an example of that would be Mike Mignola, who I always liked his work, toiling away, drawing chubby Wolverine and chubby Batman and and chubby <laughs> everything else and uh, yeah, you know yeah. chubby uh, Fawford and the Gray Mauser and you know, actually was that him? Yeah, that was that was Mignola. Yeah, that um, was him. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, written by Howard Chaykin. Was it inked by P. Craig Russell? I think it okay, was. I think I think mm -hmm. I'm right. Anyway, but you know you see his style never quite being suited for superheroes. You're like, eh, 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 and then finally when he creates Hellboy. And it's all the things that he loves drawing. You're like, oh my God, this is it. He has arrived. Yeah, there you, you know, go. He's arrived at his mm -hmm. apex mountain at the, at the, at, you know, at the, that it's the moment of clarity that Jules talks about in, uh, in, 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 in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and I think maybe even similarly with uh, someone like uh, Michael Golden, where, mm. you know, he's drawing, you know, like the demon and Batman and doing these backups and, and then he gets to Micronauts, and it's kind of cool. You know, it's kind of working. It was like, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when he gets to, like, the Nom, and uh, when he gets to, like, when he becomes a cover artist, to me, like the, those Batman go. covers and those Nightwing covers mm. where you're like, Jesus Christ, I have been waiting mm. to see this mm. the whole time I've been a fan of you, dog. <laughs> what took so long and then you find out you know what took so long in assembly with burn and x-men and you know and, mm. and there are other examples that we could think of as opposed to someone like as far as i'm concerned like everything you know steve ditko to do he was born to do he was born to draw spider-man yeah. at that point he was born to do dr strange mm -hmm. his style was perfect for dr strange his style was perfect for captain adam and the blue beetle and uh, you know, and all of that stuff. The question he was—it's perfect for it. Yeah, it was ideal. You know, so there yeah. there are way few examples of that in his career. Um, versus you know, so anyway, but yeah, I really do think like Metal Men, the 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 weirdness of those characters, the kind of wonky, odd, what you know, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, and then you know, it just worked for his style. You know, again the the slight abstracting that he would do. It's it's representational, but it's slightly abstracted and exaggerated, almost like a Mad Magazine artist in a way, if they pull back a little mm. bit. I just think all that stuff just really works. And again, it's it's on newsprint. It was coming out monthly. Mm -hmm. You know, these were just good-ass 1970s and 80s comics. And it just it just worked for me. And, um, and, and th those stories are not particularly spectacular, but I just love that little sweet mm -hmm. spot, like I said, between four, uh, issues 47 and 49. Mm, so, mm. yeah, and you know, speaking of Metal Man, the thing that goes hand in hand with me is around that same time he did a couple of issues of a of also a DC book called Hercules Unchained, mm. and if you've ever seen it, it's like it's un it's unrecognizable as him because whoever was inking it just completely took over. It was just like, no, no, I'm gonna disregard these pencils. No, no, I got it, I got it, I got it. So whoever was inking it. 
you can you can kind of see if you look hard enough and if you happen to look at the credits that Walt Simonson drew it, but you wouldn't know it if you just saw it offhand. Mm. You you can tell you can tell because of the angularity of his um, bodies. It's like, yeah, I can kind of see it now, but other than that, totally obscured by the anchor. Really is. But that Metal Man, okay, well, I get that honorable mention. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, you got one, uh, one that's just kind of a wild card or just a favorite of yours? Yes, yes. Um, this is from the early 90s. This would have been, you know, one that I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm with it. I'm with it. Robocop versus Terminator. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew, I knew you was going to have that reaction. I knew it. <laughs> oh, my God. Otherwise, what, with the, the tagline, cash grab. <laughs> 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 but check it, though. It's drawn by Cyberson and written by your boy, Frank Miller. You can't beat yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. That's... Now, 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 I will say this though. I will say this though. The story is not any great shakes. It's really not. It's like you said, cash grab. But the graphics yeah. in it. Psh, yeah. I had gotten the I had gotten the um, large size uh, gallery edition uh, several years ago, and you see that stuff up close. Simonson, a lot of his, a lot of his repeating graphics. You know, he's using Xeroxes and repeating panels to really get that graphic sense mm -hmm. down. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? And uh, it's cool to see that because you see his technique, mm -hmm. you know? And um, it looks great. Like I said, the story is not awesome, but looking at it, just looking at Simonson's work, his mm -hmm. graphics, man, it's fantastic. I love yeah. it. And plus, I'm a big fan of both of those movies, those properties anyway. Yeah. So, so it does it for me okay. at least, All right. you know? All right, I feel you. I feel you. I feel you. All right, so I'm really good. I'm gonna get out here with this one, but I think it 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 deserves to be in a Walt Simonson Hall of Fame, and it's not a comic. All right. It's not a backup story. It's not a cover. It's not a splash page. It's not a drawing per se. It's not any of those things. His, okay. his signature. The dinosaur oh. signature. <laughs> okay. The dinosaur signature. Yeah. Um. I remember, like again, as a young comic fan and as a as a as a wannabe artist, probably about 17, 18 years old. I remember perfecting mm -hmm. all of my favorite comic heroes' signatures. So I could do Simonson's signature. I could do Bill Sienkiewicz's signature. I could do Neil Adams. I could do. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't do Burns. Uh, I could mm. do. Um, who else? Anyway, there was there were several that I could do. I could do Chakins. You know that. Okay. You know that he yeah. would do it just like he like he was writing on top of everything. Everything he was writing, he was writing on top of the same space. I could do the Chakin signature. <laughs> and uh, and I remember yeah. uh, uh, my friend Pat, who ran the comic shop Titans Titans Games and Comics, who ended, ultimately ended up starting Dragon Con. I uh, mm -hmm. gave Pat a birthday card one year. And I signed it with all of the comic si signatures that I could mimic. And the last time I saw him at Dragon Con, which was probably three, four, five years ago, he said he still has it. He yeah. said he still has the, has the oh, card. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's but cool. I, I think yeah. Simonson's signature should be in there because it's so creative, so interesting. It so speaks, it represents at once his style, who he is in terms of his name, 
Mm-hmm. And then also his interest in dinosaurs, the fact that he was able to craft that and make it work. And it's like, damn. So I think his signature goes into the, the Hall of Fame. Oh, man, I'd agree with that, too. And along that same line to close also, the other thing that I love about Simonson, too, is whenever he draws like little caricatures and even on like his characters inside the books, that classic, that signature Walt Simonson smile. You don't see individual teeth, but his smile, the smiles are so winsome. It just looks mm-hmm. like one big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Mm-hmm. I instantly start grinning when I see that, yeah. man. Almost like almost like the smile that uh, the, 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 the man on the front of the can of Pringles does, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Because the Pringles are so good. Yeah, you go, you're going to be smiling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. And and I can probably say like Simonson has, it was very in vogue in the 70s and the 80s for comic artists to draw themselves or to draw the comic artists in funny ways, ads or within the story or, you know, some kind of a, of a, of a single, single panel uh, gag or something that would be printed in on, on a news page. Mm-hmm. You would just see these things happen. And Simonson has drawn himself. Kirby's yep. drawn himself in in what if he drew himself as a damn superhero in uh in what if, uh, <laughs> and I think Milgram has drawn himself. Uh, who's who else was has drawn themselves? Bird. Oh man, John, the most egregious one was Bird. It's like okay, Bird, we know how you look, but when you draw yourself, you're some skinny blonde right. guy. Right. Mm, 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 mm. Right. Where's the sweater? Where's the pot belly? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, you got another one uh, to throw in? Let's see. Uh, do, do, do. Hmm. All right. I would say just a very honorable mention. Very honorable. Um, his run on Fantastic Four um, from like three, say three, uh, 343 through like 350. Maybe a little bit past mm-hmm. that. This is one of the story is no great shakes. It's, it's like... <sighs> But again, the graphics look so good. The, the, his stuff on there just looks so good, man. And it's the Fantastic Four. And he even embraces the early 90s aesthetic on those stories. Those stories came out in 1990. And he's seeing these guys like Liefeld and Lee with these big guns, mm-hmm. right? So what does he give the Fantastic Four? Huge A big guns. gun. Yo, big Huge. gun. <laughs> yes, yeah, like, what? What? It's like, okay. But again, the, story, the, the, the art just looks so good, you know what I'm saying, even though the story isn't great. And there is a three-issue, you know, arc where Samson takes a break and he still writes the story. But in the midst of that, he has uh, Art Adams comes in to illustrate those three mm-hmm. issues. Now that, now that yeah. works. And that was a cash grab almost because the Fantastic Four take a break. He brings in Wolverine, Spider-Man, Hulk. And Ghost Rider as the new Fantastic Four? Mm. Boo. <laughs> Boo, yes. But when I was 14, I was like, yes. <laughs> you go ahead, Walt. Go ahead. When I was 15, I was with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, speaking of Art Adams, another artist who was influenced by Simonson, you know. That's right. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you can really see it, especially early on, and with like Longshot and uh, and uh, and some of the other stuff that that he did. But um, all right. So yeah. last thing I'm gonna throw in, and this is this is the wildest of wild cards, but 
I think it is an honorable mention uh-huh. is uh, Walt Simonson's cameo in the Thor movie from 2011. Oh, you man. know what I mean? It's like if you if if, if you if you blinked, you might have yep. missed it, or if you didn't know, why are they spending like five seconds showing this bearded guy laughing? Yep, yep. <laughs> Who is yep. that sitting around eat, eating eating uh, 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 minced meat pie and, and and turkey legs and drinking from a goblet, <laughs> uh, ale from a goblet, yo? But uh, yeah, yeah, there's like a big dinner scene in, in the Thor movie from uh, from uh, 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 from 2011, and and Walt Simonson, who wasn't the creator of Thor by any means, is you know it's based on on the, on the Norse mythology, but he was a big fan of Norse right. mythology even before he he you know got into the comics industry, and Thor was one of his favorite mm-hmm. characters. And like Adrian said, he did do a short uh, stint on Thor before his official big stint on Thor from uh, issue 330. 37 with the introduction of beta ray bill but he was he is considered you know one of the quintessential uh thor creators and and people who have who have written it written and drawn the character so they put him in the movie and i think that should go in because you know i I hope i hope he got paid i hope marvel broke him off Mm. and they 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 did they came correct and, and 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 did him right but you know the idea of just being able to be in there and be in the movie and be immortalized in that way um, again, I just love the the kind of lyrical closing of the loop that that, that kind of represents. So I, I think I think mm. his cameo in, in the in the Thor movie uh, goes in the Hall of Fame as well. So. That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.